you know, sort of dilemma is what do we do with AI, right? How do we regulate it? How do we use it? How far do we let it act on our behalf? Are we being, is there integrity at risk when we're using ChatGPT to write a cover letter for a job? Or are we just making good use of the resources and tools and being resourceful, which maybe employers want us to be, right? So I don't know the answers to these questions. I feel like they are Welcome to Humanizing Software, where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives, hear incredible stories, and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to Humanizing Software, episode 32, where we explore this concept of ever-present software, which seems to be even more in the news on an everyday basis, not only on new viruses and threats and malware, but OpenAI, ChatGPT, various different means with which that people are interacting with technology through the world, and where we talk with, have a fireside chat with a number of different leaders as to their viewpoints, their thoughts on this concept of software, which has been around for some time, and how it impacts our everyday lives. We've had a number of amazing guests that have joined us in the past, like Yen Young, Joanne Corum, Henrik Markarian, The Peak Sangam, and others. So check us out on YouTube with our own channel, with any of our past episodes, and also please engage in our conversation online. Visit our website at tailwindsw.com. If you're joining us live today from anywhere around the world, we encourage you to ask questions during the actual livecast itself, and again, engage in the conversation. Not only is this a fireside chat between our guests and myself, but it's supposed to be a forum with which that people are able to share ideas, thoughts, ask questions, and understand exactly how this thing of software is going to continue to impact us all. So I'm very excited today to have a special guest join us with one of our actual partners at Tailwind Business Ventures, MX. Joining us today is Corinne Barto. Corinne has had over 25 years of industry experience, including engineering, marketing, sales, channels, and alliances. She has launched a very large and diverse variety of successful go-to-market initiatives, specializing really in a variety of ecosystem and partner programs, all of which involve how do we get software that is in production in and actually having an impact with actual folks itself. She's got many different years of experience as a marketer, a sales manager, and indirect sales leader. She's able to connect with all of the various stakeholders that she's got inside and outside of a complex, or outside of her company with complex partnerships and other means to make sure that what needs to get done is actually getting done. And currently at MX, Corinne is leading the FinTech partnerships and business development efforts. So as we start off today's conversation, please join me in welcoming Corinne Barto to our conversation. Corinne, good morning. Hello, good to see you, Andrew. How are you? I am well, thank you so much for asking. So excited about our conversation today. We're excited about seeing you guys in person. I still don't get tired of saying that later on this year in September, but excited on a number of different fronts. But before we jump into our conversation on humanizing software and this concept of people-driven tech, 
which spoiler alert, I'll be asking you about later on in the conversation. Would love for everybody that's listening in, not only live, because we have literally a very large audience that tunes in after the fact as well. Tell us the Corinne Bartow story. Sure. And I thought about this because, of course, I watched a few of your podcasts. And so I had some time to think about what part of my story is relevant or interesting for you. And so I've got a few things I want to tell you about. But I want to start with, like, I actually, where I grew up. I grew up in Woodstock, New York. It is kind of most of what you might expect it to be, except that the neighborhood I was in was all IBM families. And the IBMers got together and said they didn't want their kids going to school with those hippies. So we actually went to some city pools. And we're exposed through our local Woodstock community more maybe for fun, but less so from, from a standpoint of bringing. And there's something that was really, I think, valuable to me growing up there, which is that there's so many different types of people just living so many different types of lives in that environment that you really learn that there's no right answer. There's no one path that life will hand you lots of different opportunities. And yeah, you can make bad decisions. But most of the decisions are just choosing a path and it'll take you where it'll take you and paths are just different they're not good bad better so growing up i was i was absolutely sure i was either going to be a photographer a marine biologist or just follow the local tradition and become an engineer it turns out salt weather makes me gag so marine biology was out <laughs> and i think you can always go back to photography anytime really do you need a college degree to take pictures maybe not so i became an engineer and after my first few years of college, I actually was an engineer. So I was a systems and hardware engineer. But I was pretty quickly moved into managerial roles. And you'll see that today when you see people talking about women in technical roles and you talk about what they call the glue work, which is all of the peripheral work that it takes to be effective as a team. It's not that men can't do it. It's just women grav often gravitated to more. And I hate that sort of you know, having stereotypes, but it is true. It was true for me. So I pretty quickly left that world and I went to work for a company that had a, they made one of those bets, right? VHS or, or beta, it was different bet than that one. They went wrong and they didn't have product all of a sudden for the market of what the market wanted to buy. And so they built a team to come in and do OEM products, bring in third-party product. And so I was basically a product manager in my first job outside of being a systems engineer. And my boss that hired me there and gave me that opportunity then moved to another company and he brought me on board to run the Western region of the US and Canada for a channel. So that was my first sales job. It wasn't a small one and I just loved it. I loved the job. I loved the way it brought people skills into the mix in a different way than say direct sales. And so that really is how I got into what I do and love, which is helping organizations really figure out the path from building product to being successful and delivering it to the market, which very often does involve partners, not always, but most often somebody else is involved in that decision, not just you and the buyer, right? So long through all that journey, started in Boston, moved to Silicon Valley. When I got to Silicon Valley, it was very different than it is today. I like to think of it as being maybe more pure. Everything was focused on creating and building. And yeah, you know, there was money at the end of the rainbow, but that wasn't the point. It was a benefit or a side effect and that flipped. It really became much more, I thought, over the many years I was there to be money driven. And so when the dot-com crash happened, I was working for a company had been the IPO of 2000. My daughter was two. I got to spend no time with her because I was still in the startup world. We had some friends that had traveled around the world and then they came back after a year and another couple were talking about going. That woman and I were pregnant together. Our daughters are five days apart in age. Started joking about vicariously 
living through them and one day just whatever, vicarious, let's just go do it. So my husband and I sold our house, got rid of all but one of our cars, moved our car and our dog to the East Coast where our families were to take care of them. And we left and we traveled. It ended up being 18 months. We traveled around the US and Canada, we went to Fiji, New Zealand, Australia. We spent about three months in each of New Zealand and Australia. We just traveled around, spent time as a family. It was fabulous. There's something very different about being someplace when you're gonna be there for six weeks, eight weeks, three months as opposed to a week, um, really got to you know, sort of tickle the curiosity bug, really spend time with my daughter and reset what I thought I wanted to do in life. When we came back to the US, we decided to move to the East Coast so that she would be close to family. We thought we'd come to New York for three or four years. She was four, she's now 22. So we've been here for quite some time. And in that, when I went back into my career, I kind of left that whole telecom, which had been you know, maybe worse than the dot-com crash is what happened in the telecom space for those of us that were trying to leverage what was happening in the deregulation of that industry. And I went into enterprise software. So after getting her settled in school, I was working in enterprise software, still enterprise communications really. And over time shifted to consulting. And so I spent six years as a consultant teaching companies how to build channels and alliances and how to take them to market, how to hire, how to train, did a lot of training and a lot of consulting over that six years. Eventually, you know, doing is so much more fun than teaching eventually to me. I eventually went back and decided to come back. And when I did, I came back into FinTech. And so that was a little over five years ago, almost six years ago. So that's my time in FinTech really is that, that six year history. I've been at MX for three years and you know, that's, that's been a, a fabulous journey. I, I have learned a ton. I think that there's been a lot of change both in the industry and our company over that time. You've had a seat right there at the front. We lost one of our founders in a very tragic loss for the company. I think also tragic for the industry. I think everybody who Brandon touched was made better by his touch. And so we've been going through a lot of change in the last little over a year since then, and also some management changes. And you know, every company hits a point where you're no longer a startup and now you're supposed to be a scale up and we have absolutely the right leadership team for that transition. And so if, if there's anything that you can take away from the tragic loss is that there's an opportunity to shift gears and do things differently. And you know, we've embraced that as a company. So I'm really proud of the work we're doing at MX. I'm really proud of the partnership we have with Tailwind. I think when you think about, you know, you said it earlier, connecting from building to actually impacting users. That's what we do. We, we care immensely about the impact on the consumer and their ability to have good financial life. And I just love it. I love what we're doing and I love our partnership and I'm really excited about all of it. Well, thank you, Corinne. And there is, there's a multiple number of threads that I certainly want to pull down from there. And yet I can't start anything without a recognition of the fact because it's not just you and it's not just two or five, it's 10 or 15 or 20 different folks that I know, not at just MX, but throughout the industry and take a moment to recognize the impact that Brandon did have. I did not ever get a chance to know or get to know Brandon. And yet I feel that if there was that opportunity that much like with other folks, he not only would have had a significant impact on my life, but I think we would have been friends. I, I just, in a number of different ways, having seen, and I followed his story on a number of different fronts. This is this is humanizing software. This is the actual important yes. stuff. Yes. The impact that a single individual can have on an organization 
and the lasting legacy of the importance of the values, the beliefs, the what truly matters. And for those of you that are listening and just check out, go to mx.com and look up underneath one of the founders, Brandon, and you'll, you'll see his story. And it is well worth your time to watch one or more of the videos of that, uh, of his impact on the world. So I wanted to call that out. I did not realize we we're going to be covering that today, but I feel compelled, <laughs> feel compelled. Without talking yeah. to Brandon. And just, if and, I can point, if there's one video that you watch, his story around the nobility of banking and, mm -hmm. you know, for those of us that have been working with banks or in banking, you know, sometimes it is, doesn't feel humanized. It feels very, in some cases, dehumanized. But when he talked about the nobility of banking, that is, I think, where so many folks felt touched. They felt honored because this is the industry they work in and they felt seen and they felt like what they were doing was important, not just for making money, but for helping actual consumers, human beings. But an amazing point to touch base or touch off on that with, with Brandon and his impact and on the human side, making sure that it's not zeros and ones. It's not just code. It's not something that you type into, tap into, facially recognize into. It is important. It is real. It is impactful. And the people behind the code truly do matter. So thank you. Thank you for mentioning that, Corinne. That's, that's incredibly important. I want to go back and shout out to your early beginnings in Woodstock. And I love the analogy of hippies or IBMers. I've, I've mentioned in previous uh, live casts, my daughter, my middle daughter, Lauren, started her first career out of school with IBM. She's up in Dallas right now, and she's doing quite a bit with Watson and on the AI side. And I'm just like, honey, you're covered for life. Just don't worry about it. This is... We're going to be going crazy with this whole industry for a very, yeah. very long time. And whatever right. it is today, isn't going to be what it is tomorrow. So I want to go way back because I found it interesting. And we're going to talk about women in technology. We're going to talk about you as an engineer, both items that are very near and dear to my heart, not only family-wise, but also with our company and frankly, why we're doing this livecast. I want to start off with, you felt like there were three passions, photography, marine biology, and oh, by the way, engineer. <laughs> so, which I, mean, I just want to take a step back here and we got photography. Okay. I got it. We got marine biology, bit random, but cool. And you can't stand the taste of salt water. So that's probably, probably not going to work. Probably just an automatic disclaimer. You're, you're, you're done. So we're down to two. So you got photography and engineering. And I think I see some tie in there, but I'm curious because why those three and why ultimately did you decide to go down the path of engineering? So a couple of reasons. So why those three? Gosh, you know, you're young and everything you look at is interesting. You have this curiosity, you become passionate about it. And when you start thinking about college, it's like a, a moment in time. What are you passionate about in that moment? <laughs> right. So I loved, I loved fish. I just we had a saltwater tank. They were so cool. I could watch them for hours. Photography, I loved the dark room. It was about creating. It was about building in some ways, right? So building on an image or working with an images in creative ways. I was the photography editor for the school newspaper, but a lot of my photos were very artistic. <laughs> Maybe that's the Woodstock influence. And I did work in a Photoshop and, you know, I, I created contact prints for artists in New York. So in Woodstock, so it was really, it was a passion. And you know, I'd say it would be a passion still to this day if I still had a dark room because it was the dark room more than the time behind the camera that that was my 
my solace or, or what I loved. Engineering is kind of interesting. I just always loved math, which, you know, girls aren't supposed to like math, right? If, if, you, if you listen to the talk track, but I always loved math. It came relatively easy to me compared to some other topics in school. And when I was a senior, now back then, yes, you took an SAT test, but they told you Friday that the test was the next day and you went and took it. Like there was none of the studying and prep and I'm old. And so it wasn't about, you didn't know, you started applying for colleges in, I don't know, April, not April, that would have been too late, but maybe it was like February. It was certainly not junior year or the beginning of your senior year. And so I remember very distinctly being in a class and it was spring and it was a senior year and it was a calculus class. There was maybe 12 of us in this high level calculus class in high school. And the instructor teacher gave us a problem and he said, you can leave. It was, you know, it's a beautiful spring day. You can leave when you solve this as a class. Everybody, you know, started getting their pen and paper out and pencils and papers out. And I was like, hmm. And I got up on the board and I sketched it out and I estimated and said, it's in this range. And he looked at me, he goes, you are not a scientist. You are an engineer. Get out of here. <laughs> wow. And in that moment, like, that's eh, close enough. Like, you can estimate it using an image. You don't need to, like, actually do the calculation. Then you go to engineering school. And, of course, you have to get it exactly right. It's not like the bridge can fall down because you estimated it right. But that was the moment where... You know, in some ways, although I loved math and I loved building and creating and all of that, it didn't put it together as a engineering being a career for me really until that moment. It was just sort of that thing that was in the back that you grow up in IBM land. That's what you do. You become an engineer, right? So in some ways, I regret it because I actually, you know, going to a, a, an engineering school with very little other topics of lessons, like, you know, we had to take one humanities class a semester and four gym classes, and that was it. Everything else was a part of your major. You know, I feel like I came out of school very narrow, and most of the, the things that I love now are the culture and reading and, you know, putting pen to paper. And so it's, I feel like it was a very useful start, but it wasn't necessarily the right start for who I, I am today. It was fine for my 18-year-old self or my 20-year-old self, not, not, not for my current self. So I want to, before we get into, because I want to talk a little bit more about your path, and I love the scientist versus engineer analogy, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more on, on women in technology, but I just want to go back and bemoan the fact that if only Mr. Stry, God rest his soul, had had that same conversation with me my first year of my senior year of AP Calculus, it would have right. saved me eight months of heartache, pain, and suffering. Because... <laughs> I would have said bye-bye, and I don't know what I would have taken, but that was a very, very painful eight months of my life, and it is why I am not an engineer, right. nor a scientist, nor do anything relative to calculus, because I respect <laughs> people that are able to do it, and I happen not to be one of them. So Everybody um, is able, but I think it also comes down to how you're taught, right? Like It is an abstract thing to learn, and if you don't have the right teacher for the way your brain works, it's not going to happen. No, and he was a great teacher. He had a bad student. So just, I mean, just, just to remove any semblance of doubt. And, and, and I say that I'm almost positive. I know I certainly passed it. I'm not sure if it was with a high B or I don't even think I could have even approached the A back in the day relative to that. Let's just say I survived calculus and we'll leave it at that. Switching gears. You have, I mean, 25 years in the industry. 
you've seen a lot of cycles. You've been a part of different companies. You were there for the dot-com boom and the bust mm -hmm. for the economic crisis in 2008 for web 1.0, 2.0, and now whatever we're defining this 3.0 with all of its different crypto and NFTs and open, a open API with chat GPT and all that fun stuff. <laughs> you've got several decades of experience and you are a woman who is a leader in technology. This is something, and not only because I have two young ladies that are just two of the most magnificent women on the planet that just happen to also be my daughters, and that may be why, but women in technology is something I'm particularly passionate about. How have you seen your journey change, improve, go astray? Just let's talk through your journey as a woman in technology. Yeah, and you know, so I graduated college well over 30 years ago. And it was different. My graduating class was 18% women. And it was the peak of that period. It dropped before it went back up. It's interesting to think about what that means for the environments we work in, right? It's the camaraderie that we feel with people has to do with shared experiences and commonalities. And so that's at the root of women sometimes feeling unappreciated or like they don't fit in or they don't belong in those environments, right? They don't look like and sound like their peers. And that was no less true then. And unfortunately, it's no less true now for a lot of people. That said, what has changed is how overt the sexism gets to be. So I have stories from when I was fresh out of college and also I was younger and maybe less sure of myself and maybe not as hard to approach inappropriately. But Unbelievable things were, would have said to me and my female peers when I was a young worker. And the good news for most women today is they don't have that kind of overt sexism and really, quite frankly, sexual harassment as frequently as we experienced it when we were forging the road. And it was generations before me really started forging the road. If you go back long enough, more programmers were women than men, but that was very early. So if you think about that, that's all great. But what hasn't changed is the subtle expectations of how women are perceived or what you expect of women. So we all grow up with moms and moms have a kind of role in our lives. And this is not universally true. Some people's dads are warmer and more nurturing than their moms, but mostly it's the moms that are warmer and more nurturing. As a woman in the workplace, you're always balancing that warmth with your strength of presence. And there's a concept called a double bind. And the double mind basically says, in very harsh terms, you can either be liked or respected, but not both. Now, that's unfair. And it's not black and white like that. But it is true that women are often either too warm, and therefore, they're not seen as strong. Or when they are strong, or they behave in a strong way, they're not perceived as warm. And Men get to be not warm, but women often don't get to be not warm based on preconceived ideas of what women are supposed to be or how we're supposed to act or behave. And to all of that, I say, tough. I'm just going to be me and you need to be you. And we need to hold people to account. And we do that by being good allies for each other and also making sure the men around us are good allies for us. So if the norm is that a woman needs to be softer in order to be liked than a man, tough. If I'm not soft, then I want you to stand up for me because it's fair that I get judged on the same terms that you get judged. Our 
gender should not impact that. And that's true for not just gender differences, but any kind of differences that people have in the workplace. So it's incumbent upon all of us to fight our own internal biases. I had a conversation with a woman recently that I work with who talked about her biases and how she checks herself. Not that she overtly thinks that women should be softer, but she finds herself reacting in the same way that sometimes men do to women that either come across as too hard or too soft. And so I think there's a lot of just implicit, subconscious, very frustrating bias in our culture as a whole that it's incumbent upon all of us, not just women, to, to work at changing. That said, it's not that women can't do nothing for themselves in those environments, right? I think being very conscious of that balance between being respected and doing good work and having enough warmth that basically it comes across as charisma when you have both things. And that's true for men and women. When you've got both warmth and competence and capability, that comes across as charisma. And so finding your path to having a charismatic presence can make a big difference. And that's something that we learn. We learn a lot. I'm certainly not the same person I was 20 plus years ago in my presence. And none of us are, right? We, we learn and we change. We absorb from people around us and we can purposely choose to change. The other thing we can do is be very conscious of I used to call it menial work, but I learned a term recently called glue work, which is a lot of the unglamorous, unpaid, unidentified, unassigned work that needs to get done in order for teams to work well together. Disproportionately, women pick that work up. And when they do, then they're being perceived as helping and assisting, not as the expert, not as the person. There was a story I heard about a woman who came into a role and it was an engineering role. She took on the role. She noticed that there was gaps. There weren't standards for how software was written. There was these gaps and she started filling the gaps. When it came time for somebody to get promoted to backfill the manager, she was overlooked in the favor of somebody that was a really good coder. And she was perceived as not being a good coder because she was busy doing all the leadership tasks of the team and then not being recognized. That's an extreme example, but it is not illustrative example, I think, of what women need to be conscious of. It's not to say don't do that work. It's to make sure that you and your boss have an agreement, you and your manager have an agreement of this work is valuable and we're gonna put a priority on it because it's important that it gets done and it's a part of somebody's job description. It's not that incidental work that we're not gonna count, but is so crucial to making making the business work, making, making our lives and what we're contributing come to fruition. So I wanna take the last however many minutes of that segment and I wanna cut it out of this humanizing software and I wanna create a Karim TED Talk and literally <laughs> put it live. I, I, claim, I cannot claim ownership of these thoughts. This is a it's, simulation it's, of... It's, I'm not ownership. However, your discussion, your presentation, your concept of taking compassion and warmth and creating charisma as, as part of that, that resonates so well. We have had so many conversations about this. And this isn't a podcast. This isn't a live cast that's called male software or female <laughs> software or right. men and women software. It is humanizing software. And it is taking the unique attributes of humans, whether they are male or female, tall or short, big, small, from whatever ethnicity, demographics, geographical, racial, mon monetary, pick your associated tag right. or identifier associated with that. And they all fall under this subset of humanizing software. 
And you've just encapsulated quite eloquently, Corinne, this concept of not only the challenges that a woman faces, but the opportunities it presents as well. And I, that is just fantastic stuff right there in and of itself that comes from your personal journey. Right. I'm going to send you a link to a book because that, that concept of warmth and strength or warmth and confidence coming together for charisma, there's a book called Compelling People that dives into that very deeply and very effectively that if you like the concept, I think you'll find the book really a good read. Thank you. Com compelling people. Just making yeah. a note of that relative to that. And we'll make sure that we include it in our tagging and whatever it is that our production crew does that's so magical relative to these live casts. But compelling people. Do you happen to know the author by chance, correct? I should, but I don't. And I would have to get up and go find the book to tell you. <laughs> I can't even tell you any of the two or three books that I'm reading. Part of the problem is because I'm reading two or three books simultaneously. Right. But never, never, ever a problem with that. Let's take a step back from... The, the women in technology and talk a little bit about what you've seen as it pertains to how software has changed and morphed. Now, and we've talked about your career over the last couple of decades. Now let's talk about what you've seen the industry do because you started off and had a variety of different roles up to and including now enterprise software and MX, which is just an extremely unique company in the space doing some pretty extraordinary things. But I'm, I'm curious to get your take Software, when you started or first started working with it, call it 25 years ago, and now software in 2023, how have you seen that journey? What have you seen as the, yeah. the maturity of software over the last few decades? So early in my career, software was invisible, right? I mean, it was in the systems that we were using. It was, you know, in the circuit switch that was enabling your phone call to complete we didn't have computers at home. We didn't have phones. We maybe had a pager by the time I graduated college, maybe. So it really, software wasn't visible to people in that context. And it wasn't until maybe I was eight, 10 years in my career that UX was even a thing, right? I mean, granted, Windows came along and of course people were doing UX, but UX is something you could study or develop expertise around. It wasn't a thing. So there's been a ton of revolution, right? And if I go back to my days of, of when, you know, these things were first coming into, into being, there was, well, first of all, there's still, the baby bells were still in existence. And those were the local telephone companies for those that, that don't know who the baby bells were. And they were all gonna become wireless carriers as things were happening. And they had this concept, I used to call it the effing pizza delivery problem because when phones only could make phone calls, and then we added the ability to touch the digits to make letters happen, like that was that was like game changing at the time. And that was your experience of software for the most part. You didn't know there was software in your car. You didn't know there was software in your refrigerator. There might not have been back then, but you knew there was software in this device that you first had in your hand, or maybe you had a one of those little square brick Macs at home if you're pretty advanced. You knew there was software in there. Maybe you use Lotus one, two, three to do the calculations that you used to do on a piece of paper. It was pretty, pretty basic how you interface with software. And the telcos were like, oh, you know, we're going to create a button on your phone. And when you press a button, a pizza will show up. Like, yeah, that's not what happened. Apple eventually came along, but there was a lot of iterations before that. And I think people think, oh, Apple came along and they got UX right, right out of the gate. Like, no, there was a lot of different trials and experiments and mini successes, the Palm Pilot. Do you remember the Palm Pilot? Like there was a lot of Blackberry. There were a lot of iterations. The Newton. 
way back when with the Newton. Yes, yeah. So what has changed in software, I think, is a couple of things. One's the power of computing has changed. So now we get these beautiful interfaces and, you know, I watch people playing games that look like they're in real life almost. So certainly the power of, of computing has changed. The other thing that has changed is the understanding that the user has a say in how they're going to consume and use software. And the better we understand them, the better we can build to meet their needs. And I think the that, you know, early UX design was about how do we make good use of the glass with the, what we want to present. And if you remember, you know, we're both in banking, right? If you think about online banking experiences, they range from adequate to really poor because they're still in that sort of almost pre-consumer centric view of UX, more about how do we get as much as we can onto the pane of glass so that people who are really crafty and patient will find it. What hasn't changed about software from a standpoint of being human is, is, is really more like it. Now what's happening is not only is software there and making your experience better, but it's even doing more work for you as a layman, right? So, you know, it used to be that we would get into our bank statements and list out all our transactions and figure out what we spent last month. Now it's at your fingertips. Not only is it at your fingertips, but there are companies working to tell you what's the next best move. And maybe even in some places thinking about making that move for you on your behalf. So software is becoming a lift for everything we do in every part of our lives, even the most simple thing of knowing how much money you have in the bank and where it's, where it's going to go. So it's interesting because a, a very significant portion of our work at Tailwind happens to be in the banking industry and the user experience. There's been more and more talk in the last several years about this concept of customer digital journey, customer journey, the, the digital transformation, just everything that's either digital or customer or company related as it pertains to that. And, and I think back to the day when, when mobile banking was not even really mobile banking. It was trying to figure out if you were playing Pong or sending a wire transfer, one of the two, just blink, blink back and forth. That has now radically changed that with these, and you said it, the power of computing is amazing in the sense that we now have this different form factor. And yes, I'm using a term that's quite, quite dated. You played the, <laughs> you played the Palm Pilot card. I'm going to go ahead and I played the Newton form and play the, the form factor card. But now we've got this device that has more computer computing power here with this latest edition of the iPhone than many very supercomputers from five or 10 years ago. And it's incredible because it allows us to click a button and oh, by the way, not just order a pizza, by the way, which is kind of cool going back to that. And I love that analogy of the effing <laughs> pizza problem. Delivery right? problem, just, yes. <laughs> there are so many different bites, sound bites that we're gonna take from today. It's just incredible. But the other piece is the fact that I've got this opportunity with this phone that if literally during the course of our conversation, I could take a moment and now with open chat, with open GPT, I can literally have a conversation about creating a website, creating a marketing plan, not just ordering a pizza, but literally establishing an account, literally doing a variety of different things, yeah. all because of the power of what we've got in this form factor of giving us access to the world. Access to the world brings with it goods, bads, and uglies. In your mind, Corinne, taking into account all of your experiences with software and this concept of humanizing software, what are some of the goods, some of the bads, and some of the uglies as it pertains to software? So the big, you know, sort of dilemma is what do we do with AI, right? How do we 
regulate it? How do we use it? How far do we let it act on our behalf? Are we being, is there integrity at risk when we're using ChatGPT to write a cover letter for a job? Or are we just making good use of the resources and tools and being resourceful, which maybe employers want us to be, right? So I don't know the answers to these questions. I feel like they are huge and not as well understood as maybe we'd like to think we understand them. I think that the the good is many of us do a lot of menial tasks in our day to day. And wouldn't it be nice if those went away, right? Like if, you know, if instead of having to write an account plan, a salesperson could have some kind of AI go in and look at their emails and their slacks and the the 10K from the company and, you know, actually help you structure. It's the final product has still got to come from the human though, because computers have limits in their abilities. And so I think there is this balance of how much does it assist us? And, you know, I think there's a risk of people over relying on the AI and then you know, what's unique, right? If you're looking to be unique as a company, if you're all using the same chat GPT models, your answers aren't going to be unique, right? And how are you going to carve out your space? So I think there's still a lot of human intelligence that needs to go into how we consume AI. That's true on the menial stuff that we look at AI to do, right? There's still, you know, we don't have self-driving cars because it turns out the human brain is so impressive and all these little signals that we take in and we're not even conscious of, there's not enough instrumentation and the AI solutions to solve for that, right? And so, yeah, you know, the truckers can drive across an empty road in the middle of the plains for for sure, but do you really want automated AI driving cars in New York City? I don't think so. <laughs> no, there are less people there, right? So so I think that I think the dilemma is huge. And I don't think it's like a year away before we figure it out. And I think we're gonna over-rotate one way and we're gonna over-rotate other way. Governments that have less concern over maybe integrity and individualization maybe are gonna over-rotate in a way that's different than say the US might over-rotate or Western Europe might over-rotate. So it's gonna be a huge experiment. There's gonna be some tragedy. There's going to be some wins. I just, I think, you know, we talked about the 25 plus years. We won't say how big the plus is, but the one thing you learn over life is that every arc is interesting and A, it's not determined where it's going to go. Like some people like to think like, oh, it's this arc and it's always going to do this. It's not always going to do that. You never know. But you do know that you're, you know, strap in for the journey. And if you care, step up and participate. If you don't care, don't. It's fine. We can't all care about all the same things. But just know that it's not deterministic duration, outcomes, any of it. It's humans making decisions and driving it. And I do believe in the end, if you balance integrity with ingenuity and resourcefulness, emphasis on integrity, you will get the best possible answer. And there's no one exact what that might be, but you will get to a good answer. The integrity part. I think that is a live cast that can go on for multiple hours relative to not only those things that are important from a human perspective, but also as it pertains to all things AI related. And you called it, that you, you nailed it. If I plagiarize, which by the way, was a term, still is a term. Was if a I, term. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, it literally is. I mean, in, in school, we called it plagiarism in business school or in business real life. Sometimes it's called search and reapply with open AI and with, and it's not just chat GPT, Google has Bard, China has Baidu. There's a lot of folks that are investing. 
tens of billions of dollars in the industry. And it's going to change. What it is today is not what's going to be tomorrow. The fact that you have this new concept of a job that's a prompt engineer that now is getting paid a ridiculous sum of information, or excuse me, a ridiculous sum of money to ask the right type of question and the to right make sure that with the right information, supporting information. It's, so jobs are changing. Jobs are going to be kind of crazy across the board, and that's going to continue. But as we get close to the end of today's episode, and I've got a quick question that I want to ask really relative to something that I've asked every one of our last 51 folks. And I think it's very important. Integrity is key. Respect for others is key. Having compassion for others is key. And it all gets back to the humanistic side. Our title of this live cast, quite simply, is Humanizing Software. However, the subtitle of it is People-Driven Tech. When I say those three words, people-driven technology, what comes to mind for you, Corinne? Oh my gosh, I didn't prepare for this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> People-driven technology, I mean, it's everything we do in the technology industry, right? It is everything we do, not only about how we build it, but how we inform how we build it, right? What's driving our technology decisions, what's driving designs, what's driving which projects we choose. It's not just we make it up in our head, it's what we talk to the users, you know, there's a there's a great feedback loop for how technology moves forward. And, you know, all of us, the companies we work for, we've got lots of feelers out, we're bringing in lots of data, we do a lot of research, we talk to a lot of users, we talk to all the providers in between us and the users, which is, you know, our partners, our, you know, the influencers. And so when I think of people-driven technology, I think collaboration, I think listening, I think curiosity, I think experimentation, right? I, those are the things that come to mind when you say people-driven technology. It's a sort of every hand's in it, even the hands that you don't recognize and see, they're all in it, right? It's a, it's a, it's a massive, just wide open collaboration system. I think we, when sometimes we're sitting in our labs and we're thinking, you know, in a very white space kind of thing, we're gonna build something, Nobody's ever done it before, and it doesn't touch anything else. That, nothing's like that. That's not true. <laughs> so, so it's interesting, and it, it gets back to when you were born back in Woodstock, you had a series of choices, and your parents, who were IBMers, gave you the opportunity to have this path that was forward for you, Yes. whether it was photographer, marine biologist, or engineer. <laughs> and engineering came into play. And then you've realized that your passion becomes not just being a woman leader in technology, but having an impact in terms of getting the right technology into the right people's hands at the right time. And that to me speaks worlds of difference relative to the people side of driving technology. When humans are involved, that's when we keep things real, we mm -hmm. keep things with integrity, and we keep things with impact. So Thank you so much for joining us today, Corinne. I literally want to encapsulate several different parts of our conversation and lock those in. Just incredible stuff. So as thank you for joining us. Certainly appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. This has been a ton of fun. So it, yeah. It, absolutely. And as we wrap up today's episode, we want to encourage everybody in, engage with us online. Visit the website at tailwindsw.com. Check out our previous episodes in a few weeks. We're excited to have Doug Bain join us for our next episode of Humanizing Software. But as we close out today, think about the respect, think about the integrity, and think about the human side of things. Thank you again, Corinne. 
And to everybody who's joined us, a very, very good morning, a good afternoon, and good evening. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.